Hey there, party people. This is Queer Watching, coming at you from opposite coast of the U.S., here to talk about all things film and television with a queer lens. I'm Jesse, and I'm here with my best pal, Brianna, and today we're talking about the 2022 Amazon Prime television series, A League of Their Own, based off the 1992 film with the same title. And last week, we talked about episodes one through four, so if you haven't checked that out, go check that out. And today, we are talking about episodes five through eight, that lead us into the end of season one. Before we get started, we do want to take a minute to remember Leslie Jordan, who passed away yesterday on October 24th. He was a queer icon known for his roles in Hearts of Fire, American Horror Story. Uh, he was Sid on The Cool Kids, as well as a bunch of others. Um, and then during COVID-19, Leslie Jordan became an Instagram sensation and got almost 6 million followers, including myself. He was a pretty fun guy to follow. I personally know him best as Beverly Leslie on Will and Grace, um, which is where he won his primetime Emmy in 2006. So um, condolences to his family. I just wanted to take a minute and remember him. Gone too soon. Agreed. Very sad to hear him passing. It definitely distracted me at work all day. Mm-hmm. With that, we will go ahead and kick right into episode five, which is called Backfooted. Um, in a brief synopsis of episode five, Max and Carson come together to help with each other's game and respective fears. Max reconnects with her estranged family. Carson isn't sure how to lead the team if she can't win over Lupe and Greta faces her past. So, um, backfooted. Should we talk about why it's called that? Yes, I, I love your notes on it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I honestly, I knew it was some kind of pitch, but I couldn't really remember the details. So it's where the slider drops towards the back foot. So that's in case you're curious. So that's like kind of the baseball reference. But the bigger reference is it's just like being outmaneuvered by an opponent is kind of like how it's used. So thinking of episode five, why do you think it's called that? Honestly, I'm not entirely sure, but I guess my most informed guests would be between Lupe and Carson trying to like vie for power. But again, I didn't pay attention to the titles. So I hadn't thought much about it until I read your notes. Yeah. I think there's probably a couple different types of power dynamics between different relationships in this episode. And it can kind of allude to any of them. I don't think it's super clear on this one. Like it is in some of the other episodes. Think of episode five. What do you want to talk about? Or thoughts? feelings um so i believe if i remember correctly it opens with max and carson pitching and hitting now is this the episode where we get the like do you want to have a catch or do you want to play catch or was that at the end of season or episode four Hmm. i can't remember where the cutoff for that one is um but i remember at the end of four we ended with blackmail Yes. But now that we're like in the blackmail, it's not really blackmail because Carson is not bothered. No, not <laughs> so. at all. No. Um, so then I think it might be that episode. I just thought that or episode five when they're doing the you have a catch or play a catch. I thought that was really cute banter. Um, and it winds up being a, a running joke. But then we get to learn a little bit more about what was going through Max's mind when she was like on the pit or on the mound and she completely biffed it and we hear what her mom is saying playing through her mind and as a as a social worker as a therapist I have worked with a lot of people to kind of undo that negative narrative that like oftentimes we as children 
wind up internalizing the voices of our caretakers for like many different things. So in this situation, when Max is really stressed out and has to perform uh, to prove herself, she has her mom's like insecurities and her mom's like non-supportive words playing through her mind, which then causes her not to be able to focus and causes her to fail. And I think that that sets up more of Max and Tony's relationship um, where then we'll find out later kind of like other things I'm trying not to spoil. I'm trying to stay within episode five, but I think it lays the groundwork for something that comes up later in either this episode or other episodes and really drives home the importance of what parents say to their children, because oftentimes those voices stick with kids and we don't realize the effect that that can have um, because we know Max is a great pitcher, but her mom's voice and her fear is throwing her off. Yeah. I think Carson is also a nice balance of that because Carson, while perhaps being a little clueless sometimes about how racism works, um, does, yeah, she doesn't seem to always think about Max's situation when she says stuff, but does seem to want to build Max up. Thinks Max is a great ball player and seems to really enjoy their friendship. Quite honestly, I do think it's interesting that you, that you brought up the parents it's interesting to me that Max is the only one whose parents we ever get to meet. So it kind of mm. makes sense that they're the, the trauma Max deals with is related to them. Like, I don't think we really get to know anyone else's family unless you count Carson's husband. Um, otherwise, you know, we get a, like a, a mention of a previous lover from Greta, but we don't really know anyone else's family. So mm-hmm. just, I don't know. I had that thought. Same as you, like, oh, this, but also this. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that that is um, a good point. And I wonder, we also don't really get to hear the inside, like the internal thought process of other characters. So I wonder what it would be like, um, specifically like Greta, when she tries to like conceal her identity out in public and like what type of internal narrative she's hearing. Because throughout my notes, I say like the toxic communication and the back and forth of like no I love you oh my god no it's always gonna be a fling that's another episode sorry but it was just really annoying to me and I think it'd be very telling to hear what goes on in her mind and where that came from yeah totally and to be clear I'm not upset that we see Max's family I love the amount of scream time that black folks get in this show it's one of my favorite things about it like we can't really explore these other plot lines we couldn't before unless we give them a bunch of screen time so which they definitely get here and i absolutely love it so and i mean honestly what else were they going to do for max's character because she wasn't allowed to play baseball from jump so they had to develop her her life outside of baseball to show us what she has to go through what she has to carry with her and play baseball you don't need that for the other characters Yeah, and this is definitely skipping ahead a little, but Max doesn't get on a baseball team until the very tail end of episode seven. Mm -hmm. And like this and nothing really starts in in the whole season. So, yeah, it's a long slog for Max, whereas like the other teams are in their championship games. So just two different trajectories. We see her play half of one game. Yeah, and, you know, what is an amazing scene. She finally gets her second chance. Absolutely love to see it. Great assist by a new friend there. But 
so different the trajectories i am glad that they were realistic about it of course it's much harder with all the racism on top of the sexism on top of the war there's just so many things going on and of course black baseball players that were women still existed it was not only white women that wanted to play baseball in the 1940s absolutely But then it leads to one of my favorite scenes and my biggest relate scene is the I'm feeling good when clearly both Clance and Max's lives (laughs) are falling the fuck apart. Like, I'm good. You got him. Yeah, we're so good. More of that modern humor. And I was like, oh, my God, this is my life. This is yes, I'm fine. Everything's fine. I was perfect. And then cut to them just like shoving food and sandwiches and lunches into their mouths because they're totally fine. Everything's great. Big relate, big relate. Yes, they do. They are, they aren't able to keep that up forever, right? Eventually, I think they're back at Clance's house um, and they kind of just say, yeah, I'm not okay, which is just like, yeah, we all know that, but like, let's talk about why you're not okay and and what Mm -hmm. that means. Yeah. And sometimes a good best friend just lets you act like everything's fine and then is willing to sit down in the gutter with you when you're ready to talk about it. Looking at you, Jesse. Well, wow. <laughs> I was well, saying you do that for me. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Like, you're sad a lot. Like, okay, thanks, Brianna. No. <laughs> I mean, yes, but also. Okay. So then I didn't realize that the thing I was alluding to earlier with the internal dialogue was actually in this episode. So I'm going to circle back. The thing I was talking about was when we see Max and her mom later in the episode and her mom says, it's not my job to like you. It's my job to raise you. And then she's threatening. She's like, I will put you out if you don't stop acting like this, the threat of being kicked out. So she just goes out on her own rather than like waiting for this hammer to drop. I'm just going to go. But like that type of language that we still hear used today. Like, it's not my job to like you. It's not my job to be your little friend. It's my job to raise you. That type of dialogue then winds up playing in your head and like winds up being the voice that is there for you when you're stressed out, when you're scared, when you're feeling any type of emotion. And so like, if it's your job to raise me, then it's also your job to help me like myself. And how can you help me like myself if you don't like me? You are then teaching me to not like myself, that I'm not good enough, that this entire world is going to hate me, but I'm just supposed to accept it? No. So it actually is very important for a parent to love and like their child because how they speak to them is how they're going to think. I think it's probably a tough line between building them up and keeping them safe, right? Especially depending on what kind of identities they have, like Max's case, black women, right? So that's, yeah, I assume that's where a lot of that comes from. I think we kind of said this on the first couple episodes, but Max's mom has great intentions. She's doing it for all the right reasons. It's just, it's not what Max wants and needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we get even more of that. They do such a great job of developing the mom because like the trajectory that we were going, I was like, no, they're going to give me another really close-minded, underdeveloped, conservative black mom character. 
And that's not the direction they went. And spoiler alert, I really want to see more of her in the second season. Um, But yeah, I thought they did a really good job with the character growth there and the relationship growth. Yeah, and the the true complexities of of Tony as a character, like this is again skipping ahead a little bit. It's kind of hard not to, but I know um, <laughs> when Bert shows up and you know confronts her, she's not bothered by the fact that he is a trans man. She's not bothered by that. That's not the problem. It's that she feels left by him, as what we assume maybe are told. I think he's the older sibling, so. I think I don't know. Okay. Either way, they're siblings. So regardless, Bert left when Tony really wanted him to stay. Um, and Bert explains that he felt like he had to. He had to go find himself. He had to have space to do that and to, you know, grow into the man that he wanted to be. Um, mm-hmm. which she does not seem to totally understand, but does say, like, it's not about that. It's that yeah. I needed you to stay and you left. She felt abandoned. And yeah. And they talk about the concept of safety and like, this is also, I think a really great point when we look through like a a psychology lens that I believe he says like, what was safe for you was not safe for me. Mm -hmm. And that really understanding that when you are a child and when like siblings are not raised in the same house, even when they're raised in the same house, because we all experience things differently. And so the form of safety that Tony might've needed was different from the form of safety that Bert needed, but unfortunately that felt like abandonment to Tony. And then that brought up a lot of fear for Tony when it came to raising her own daughter. And it's just all, all related. Yeah. It sounds like they both did what they felt like they needed to do. Those things were just at odds with each other, unfortunately, which is what's caused the rift between them, which is why I took until a couple episodes in, you know, and late in Max's life for her to even meet her uncle Bert, who has been posed as her aunt Bertie the whole time. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. I love, I love the complexities, right? Some very real stuff going on here. Max's relationship with Bert. I'm going to kind of just talk about it a little bit if you're cool or absolutely. Okay, man. It's a little bit like whiplash, but also kind of understandable. So mm. when Max meets Bert, she kind of says, oh, I'm, I'm here for my Aunt Bertie and this, this, and this. And Bert kind of responds, well, I'm Bertie, but everything else he said is kind of up in the air, which I thought was such a fantastic response because it's uh, it's not really like correcting Max, so it still leaves it very like light. The air's open. Dialogue can still happen there. Kind of clarifies some things without calling anyone out. So I loved this response. This is kind of the stuff that feel like i used to say while transitioning when like people were trying to figure out how i identified so yeah i love that response um obviously max's first reaction is a bit shocked and she says she's gonna stay and then changes her mind and bails and that was kind of heartbreaking to to see it seems like it comes out of fear where exactly that fear is a little hard to say what what was your read on on why max was pretty quick to bail i got it more as overwhelming because also she walks into a home of just two people that like genuinely love her and are so happy to see her and i don't know if she's ever like truly met them and so walking into 
a situation where you don't know what to expect and you're met with love and hugs and kisses and, oh my God, come in. We're going to make you a plate. We're going to tell you everything. This is going to be so exciting. Think about the first time you walked into my home, Jesse, and my mom was just like, hugs, kisses. What do you want? Oh my God, you're the best person ever. It's very overwhelming. And like, that's without queerness. And then you see these two queer folks living their lives and like not hiding and not ashamed because they're in their home, they're safe. And you almost like see yourself to a certain extent, but you've never thought about seeing yourself that way. And so it's just a lot of really intense feelings, I feel like. And so she's like, I can't handle, this is more than I thought. Like, ah. That's that's, that's fair. Did. It would be pretty overwhelming. I did love that the as a couple that Bert and Georgia are clearly in love. I love them as a couple. They yeah, like I want to go hang out at their home. It was so loving and inviting the you know, all the different times we see it, but especially on that first one where they're like, "Cool, you're here. Let's get you a plate. Let's start this this bonding session." So, yeah, the overwhelming makes sense. I think later like they kind of come back together, but then it happens all over again when Uncle Bert shows up at Clance's house. And that one was honestly the more heartbreaking one when there's clearly some kind of shame going on that Max is dealing with, whether it's for herself or for Bert or for both. And she sort of is shocked he's there and immediately wants him to leave. And then when Clance says some negative things about him, like, I understand why Tony didn't want him around and he's a freak you know max doesn't really say anything and that was really tough for me to watch like as a trans man i was pretty mad at both of them and it definitely took me some time to come back around on these characters but you do come back around you do come back around like the the full way yes uh you jumped episodes math math (laughs) clance doesn't call birdie a freak until episode six because i wrote no but I have stuff to to say to that as well. So we're going to jump. It definitely hit me right in the heart as well. And I like can totally understand how that would just gut you. I though feel like it, I maybe, I don't know if I read shame when Bert came to Max's house. I read fear. Because it is still illegal to be queer in the 1940s. And so part of me was like, I feel as if in that moment, Bert almost forgot that like he might be entering into a space where he's known as something other than Bert and like forget that his presence could put him in danger or put people that he knows in danger. I feel like it's like that moment where you forget to kind of like code switch or you forget to be like, oh yes, this is not a thing. Um, because he so quickly was like, oh my God, no, like I didn't get shame. I got, I was not expecting you to be here. Now there's this very visibly queer person in my household who my best friend knows is my aunt. And now I have to just like, get this out. I didn't like get the situation out of here. I didn't necessarily take it as shame. I thought of like queerness by proximity. 
you see, I have a queer person in my life. This queer person is now in our lives. Are you going to then question me about my queerness? But yeah. Interesting. I actually didn't really read Bert as necessarily visibly queer. I thought he passed pretty well. Um, mostly like that scene in the bowling alley when he's just like talk to people and shaking hands and no one seems bothered and uses the right pronouns. So interesting. Mostly because Clance knew that Max has a birdie in her life. And so when the name is said, then just queerness. Yeah. I, I guess if it had been like a public audience or a public space, I would understand it more, but it's in Clance's house and it's just the three of them. So the risk to me here is like Clance gets upset, but that's the worst case scenario. It's not like Clance is going to call someone on him. You know, like they're still Max and Clance are still best friends. So there's still certain things going on. But we didn't know that like they were going to still be friends. Like I think about her mom and like her mom being like, no, I don't care that you that you're trans. But like, what are you doing here? Like, no, we can't stand outside and talk because people are going to notice. Yeah, I feel like it was just. And maybe that is fueled by shame. But I just got a general presence of fear because Clance could have gone a totally dickish way and been like, nope, I'm calling the cops. Your uncle's a queer. I'm not doing this. This is terrible. And then she would have fallen from being my favorite character. But yes, it's also could be totally just personal, right? Like, I'm, it's pretty easy when you're in that situation to trail it all the way to, oh, no, I'm going to have to come out, right? I understand how you follow that thread and start to panic for your own identity. Similar, like, kind of what you're talking about earlier, right? Like, if you have a queer friend, maybe you're queer, too. And honestly, like, we see from Shirley's weird character, like, there are those weirdos that think it's contagious, right? So, <laughs> yeah, they exist. And I mean, it definitely, like, that, I do see what you're talking about, like, with the shame. Because as you're saying that, I was like, huh. I hadn't thought about that. I feel like it's just to go from making out and having sex with the preacher's wife in the back room to then all of a sudden having all of this queerness visible in your life is a lot. Yeah, because you start considering it as an option and then you start, you know, contextualizing it for yourself a little bit. And then you can start to think about and see better what you have to lose. Mm -hmm. Yep. I did love, though, in episode four. Uh, when Max returns to Bert's yep, and I forget exactly what she says. Maybe she's like, I don't even know why I'm back here. And I think he says, maybe you can't, you came here to find a little piece of a home. And I did. I think that Max's apology could have been better. I have some cap lock sentences about the apology. (laughs) I think Bert deserves, but (laughs) let me go uh, see these. (laughs) But I do think that it was, honestly incredibly mature and definitely read as like aunt or uncle to me um that relationship to to say hey you super hurt my feelings but you're still obviously welcome here and let's move past it like i feel like Mm -hmm. that's the exact conversation i would have with any of my parents siblings so yeah 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 um and again getting to like I don't know. That whole scene was also great. Like, I love seeing all the the black queer folks get to live their happy little lives, you know, (laughs) obviously in private and in a nice safe way at the time. But uh, I absolutely loved all that stuff going on at Bert's home. 
And then isn't don't they also get the haircut in this episode? So that's we're kind of bouncing all around. That has already happened at this point. And episode five? Oh no, we're bouncing all over the place. The, okay, I'm I'm still. We should really just give up the episode. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I did want to circle back to the when Shirley first believes that Joe is queer. Um comes to Carson is like, oh my God, I think Joe is, is queer. I've heard it's contagious, blah, blah, blah. And Carson, in her brilliance, she's so fucking awkward, yes. was like, no, Shirley, Joe's not queer. She was dating Dove. And that's why he had to leave because there was so much sexual tension. And in the previous episode, or one of the previous episodes, Dove had made Joe run lines. And so then Shirley was like, oh, was that sexual? And Carson was like, sure, yeah. And that's when Shirley goes, kinky. And it was just such an awkward scene to watch. And I was like, oh my God, they're so awkward. Yeah, it was some pretty quick lying, but not necessarily some good lying. <laughs> not good. Not good yeah. lying at all. Not yeah, quick on the drop bad on the believability of the tale <laughs> absolutely so, yeah and then we get the most uh iconic line of a league of their own there's no crying in baseball yeah it hit more when tom hanks said it because he was a true dick what do you think yeah i think the choice of having jess say it felt kind of weird because we like jess as a character and Jess is a little rough around the edges, but like also has her moments of being incredibly kind. So we just didn't have the same power. I felt like she didn't really mean mean it. You know, it was just kind of like line. I don't know. It was there because it had to be, but it mm-hmm. didn't add. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the thing I was going to say was about the most anti-climax sex ever, because after Max gets very flustered, by her uncle Bert's home. She runs back to Guy, which I genuinely liked the character of Guy. Like, I thought he was super sweet. Um, you, I can see, are indifferent, but surprise there. Correct. Um, <laughs> but he just, she just has, like, no, it's, it's such bad sex. It's such bad sex. And I think that's what, like, confirms for her her queerness, which I'm sorry, but she could have had way better sex. Not saying it wouldn't have confirmed her queerness, but like that should not have been the standard it was compared to. But I think it, that was really to drive home that she was not into it. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, what gave it away? Was it that she pretty much sprinted out of the room as soon as it was done or? <laughs> that she just kind of like laid there like a board. It was just. Yeah, it looked very unenjoyable. And she can make it look enjoyable because what is this character? What is this? Um, um, give me a second. Give me a second. Give it Shantae Adams. Mm-hmm. I have seen her in sex scenes in other movies and she makes it look very enjoyable. So I know this was acting. Great, great insight there. <laughs> um, there's one more scene in episode five. I want to touch on before we move Go on. for it. Is it not the sex scene? No. Oh, nope. okay. Okay, nope. what is it? <laughs> so there is a scene where 
Lupe is kind of complaining about how Carson is more coached than she is, I believe. Mm. And essentially says Carson has got everything she ever wanted and turns to Jess and says, do you ever wonder why that is? Mm -hmm. Essentially touching on, hey, don't forget racism is real and that I have to deal with this crap of being called the Spanish striker, even though I'm a Mexican woman. So Jess responds, I didn't think of it like that. And Lupe says, you didn't have to. So really, I really liked that scene. It was probably there for viewers also, but it also worked for the characters. So that was one from this episode that stood out quite a bit to me. I wrote for that. Of course, the white woman gets to be the coach over the Latina. Yeah. And of course, the other, the white Jess as a white woman didn't consider that because, oh, you don't have to. Yeah. We get a little foreshadowing here um, where Joe and Greta have a conversation about, like, maybe things are different now for queer folks and maybe they're not. And does it seem like it is? And they both kind of agreed to forget the rules together. I was like, oh, no, red flag, red flag. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Which then dovetails nicely into episode six. Yep. And this is called Stealing Home. And synopsis is Max and Birdie grow closer. Clance is inspired to take her comics in a new direction. Lady Luck seems to be on the Peach's side, but Carson's concerns over Lupe's loyalty lead to an unexpected revelation. This was probably my favorite episode in the whole series, to be perfectly honest. What did you think? I feel like... Hmm, I'm going to get back to you on that. Okay, we can come back at the end. Uh huh. Do you want to know why it was my favorite? No, of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. Well played. Tell me more. Tell me more. For a couple reasons, it opens with a theater, and we see the Wizard of Oz. So immediately, I'm on board. Love theaters. Mm-hmm. Love Wizard of Oz. 1939, Victor Fleming. It's a little surprising that it's still in theaters in 1943. That's like a little surprising, but also it was such a gem. I totally understand. I feel like, though, it was probably like a cult classic even at that point. And so it's kind of like maybe like Rocky Horror Picture Show where you can just randomly see it at all times. I don't know. You're more of the film person. Perhaps to me, the more recent, like, I would never call Wizard of Oz a cult classic, to be honest. But to me, the more popular movie that had just come out would be Citizen Kane, 1941. So that's what I was thinking, too. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Cool, 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 cool. So love it because of the opening, but honestly, this episode is incredibly dense with um, some queer history. I think they did their research. There was a lot of things as like a queer history guy that I was like, yes, absolutely, yes. So. Yeah, I agree. I think something that like, I don't know if I feel like it was ever resolved enough. And this is something that like even bothered me in this episode was the relationship between Carson and Lupe. Like, I feel like, I don't know if there wasn't enough backstory or enough building time for Lupe and Dove to get close enough for me to really believe that Carson and Lupe would have that much beef. And I don't know. I also feel like by episode six, and once it's revealed that, surprise, surprise, Lupe is gay, uh, which both Lupe and 
and Jess are hundred footers. Hands down. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think that that's just something that's been bothering me for like when I was watching the show, I just did not understand why there was that conflict because I did not understand how quickly Lupe could bond with Dove when Lupe wasn't even fangirling over him. I know that's a total digression from what we were just about to talk about, but I've been meaning to say it. No, I don't. I don't think so. I think previously Lupe and Carson just didn't see eye to eye on anything. And so this, as we see secret queer bar that Jess and Lupe have been going to kind of gives them something to bond over, right? Carson starts asking Lupe questions of this world that Lupe's navigated and Carson never has and knows nothing about, right? They kind of have a brief conversation about like what Butch even means and like some of these things that Carson has no idea because our entire experience is like new with Greta and that's that's it. And so there is this entire subculture. So in some ways it flips the script. Lupe was kind of looking up to Dove and now Carson's looking up to Lupe. So I feel like there's, it kind of breaks the dynamic a little bit. Okay. That makes sense. Did you, prior to seeing Lupe and Jess go into the queer bar, think at any point that those two people might be straight? No. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't alone in that. (laughs) No. Uh, Nope, I was right there with you. Okay. Yeah, at one point, I was sort of just like, I'm just going to go ahead and assume everyone on the team is queer, and then they can go ahead and reveal themselves as straight if they'd like to. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. felt like a better approach. Uh, agreed. Agreed. And so then you were talking about the history and the speakeasy and like the queer bars and all of that stuff. And I loved that they like even referenced Wizard of Oz as person entering oh are you a friend of dorothy yep yep which was absolutely a phrase that you see Mm -hmm. or at the time definitely saw and i loved carson's like uh what because Mm -hmm. if you you don't know till you know it's again one of those things that's in queer subculture that until you learn it it's unfamiliar to you until like someone says hey here's the language the code the signals right there's all kinds of secret ways to communicate a lot of the stuff with other people including phrases like that are you a friend of dorothy Mm -hmm. which i thought was just extra perfect that the re-showing the wizard of oz judy garland huge queer icon love her so uh there was so much in this episode for me to like fangirl over this also is the episode with rosie o'donnell yeah did you have any thoughts on rosie o'donnell at all brianna So when I was watching the movie, I got very nostalgic for Harriet the Spy, Rosie O'Donnell. This is a television show, by the way. (laughs) What? You said when you were watching the movie. Yeah, when I was watching. Yeah, I don't mansplain my thoughts to me, Jess. Uh, What am I good for if not that? (laughs) Okay, please continue. I was confused. What I was saying was when I was watching A League of Their Own and we see baby Rosie O'Donnell, it made me nostalgic for other 1990s Rosie O'Donnell from like Harriet the Spy. And just the way Rosie now looks is just very different from the way she was portrayed in the original movie. And so I thought it was like almost kind of like a full circle moment, but her inflection, the way she moved her mouth, her mannerisms, And even some of the word choice they used 
very much reminded me of Trump. And I wasn't sure if that was intentional because I wasn't like, my wife also thought the same thing. And so I wasn't, I wasn't sure, but then that's not what you picked up on. Correct. Yeah. I didn't notice any of that at all. I I felt like I noticed her. I noticed her acting and making some acting choices, but I didn't notice the likeness to, to Trump. Okay, I want you to go back and just watch her scenes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what, did you have anything that came up for you with Rosie being in the, in this episode? Mm, I think my only thought is like, oh, look, they put an OG cast member in here. She was a great choice. I don't know. Okay. I, I didn't feel very strongly either way. It was fun to see her. I mean, she is queer. I love to see queer cast members. I don't know. In some ways it felt realistic, like, yeah, she would own a secret bar at the time. I don't know. I believed her as the, the bar owner in some ways. I don't find her acting to be, like, revolutionary, but her character seemed believable enough. And again, Rosie's character is in a relationship. They they show a lot of, like, older, happy queer relationships, or at least a mm-hmm. handful. And that was that was amazing. Not only was that something missing at the time, but, like, still kind of missing... And is a very nice, reassuring thing to see for all of the younger queer folks. Like, something to aspire to. Happiness is real. It's attainable. So, yeah. I, loved, I loved seeing that. And, I mean, they even say that, like, when... I don't remember what Rosie O'Donnell's character was in this episode. Um, but at one point, she even says, like, well, we've had this for six years and things have been going pretty well. Like, yeah, it was almost that kind of, like, if it wasn't hard, everyone would do it type of conversation that Tom Hanks has with Gina Davis. She's like, no, like, yes, this is, this is worth me getting my ass kicked because I get to have moments of authenticity and happiness. Like what's life worth living if it's not worth for that? Yeah. I do think that was another foreshadowing line of like, hey, something bad is coming, and you could definitely feel it in this episode. Everyone is finally leaning into it. Everyone's happy. We have kind of two parallel part queer parties mm-hmm. going on at the same time. We've got the white folks that are at Rosie's bar that's in more of a public space. It Probably still private, but kind of more of a public space. And then we have Max at Bert's house um, at a queer party that's full of black folks that's at a very private residence and looks to be a rent party, judging by them dropping the bills in the bowl on their way in. That was my read anyway. Yes. Yep. It said rent on it. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Yep. Which again, like this is where I'm like, I'm so glad they did the research because this is very realistic. So Mm -hmm. black folks still can't really go to the bars. So (laughs) they would have to party at home. Uh, So there would still be that segregation and all of that, but both just adapting to have a little bit of queer space for their own. Yeah. What I was wondering about was like, well, I know Lupe is very white passing, uh, is a white passing Latina. I wondered if even back then her presence would have been allowed at the bar because they're like, from what I remember learning in queer history, which was not my ma- my minor, it was just queer studies. Jesse was the essentially like queer history film major. Um, so you'll probably know more than me, but I feel like it was still very much segregated, like white, white, Latinas, Latinos, and then 
black people and African-American people. So I don't know if that was historically accurate or if like she was white enough that it was not a problem. Um, I think because Lupe is so white passing, it doesn't feel unrealistic. And she's also a baseball player. Yep. Yeah. Which is established as kind of like a B celebrity fame in the area anyway. So it does give them some grounds. They're all deemed kind of desirable when they enter the queer bar, right? Oh, you're one of the ball players. I'd love to talk to you. So yeah, I think, I think because of those circumstances, it feels realistic. I did have a couple thoughts of just like kind of different queer history texts. So a lot of times queer bars would have an end with the mob. And so mm-hmm. if they were able to make enough money, they could bribe their ways. The, the They could essentially bribe the risk down, right? Doesn't mean never still possible that a police officer or whatever gets a strong feeling for some homophobia and transphobia and still does whatever the hell he wants. But it definitely increases your chances and your odds. So they didn't do any of that kind of stuff, but it, my my read for a second is like dang it i wish i wish they had been more profitable because then they probably could have bribed their way out of this but we don't also know if that didn't happen because they'd been good for six years Mm -hmm. and so it it just wasn't anywhere in the text so i just as someone who has read a lot about this stuff was just looking for it a little bit Mm. the other thing i was also looking for is the the quick the quick switch when they bust in Everyone who looks female just teams right on up with someone who looks male and you just pretend to be straight people for a little bit, right? Still risky. They're still going to ID you, possibly bat you around. But again, increases increases your chances and lowers your risk a little bit. So mm-hmm. I know that historically those, are, those were typical moves that you'd see at a queer bar. Yeah. And also like even if you were the quote unquote like butch or like masculine presenting person still having female clothes on you so this way like you could go and change and things like that which i also feel like uh so in shifting to max and birdie and bert and their parties and that stuff right because in episode five bert gave max a suit so he brings the suit when he shows up to Clance's. I okay. Think, yeah, it's in okay. episode six. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, and so, but the reason why I bring that up is because then when, fuck, I'm really failing with the names. When Max goes to the party, she's wearing only part of the suit. Mm-hmm. And Bert's like, what's up? And she says the the whole thing of like, I tried to dress the way my mom wanted me to dress um, and it wasn't for me and the suit's not really for me. This is me. Thinking historically, I thought that that was very radical because I forget what the book was called, but I remember reading a book written by a, a black lesbian woman in my queer history class and she was talking about, and it was much later uh, after the forties, I think it was like in the seventies. And even then she was talking about how difficult it was to kind of be somewhere in the middle, like not butch enough, not femme enough, and not really having a place to claim as your own in the community. And here Max is 30, 40 some odd years earlier than that being like, this is who I am. And it was just accepted by older queers who were presenting more masculine and they were accepting it. So I thought that was really great because 
oftentimes even within the queer community we're like no you've got to be this type of queer and i was like yes yeah uh, i love that max made it her own what you just brought up reminds me of carson a little bit and she's just getting her queer education right for the first time and sh- you see something that i think is very common even now of oh these are all the places i can fit but I still don't feel like I belong anywhere, right? Like she's learning about butch and femme and a lot of the things that you're talking about. And she, you know, she says, I can't remember who she says it to, but like, what if I don't belong anywhere? And I know that like- Because you're bisexual. (laughs) Stop projecting. Um, (laughs) I mean, we don't know. We don't know for sure. But yeah, I think that's a very relatable thing. I, I have felt, that way myself a little bit at times and I know a lot of other people that have have voiced their concerns with the queer community in the same way right like there's so many facets and so many again rules if you will that I I don't I still don't know where I belong even though I found this subculture of people like me oh yeah and I mean and not for nothing but it like goes beyond even like sexuality and gender like me with my Puerto Rican identity being like okay well how do I make sure that I look Puerto Rican enough while also not looking like I hate the other part of my my heritage, but also then my sexuality being like, okay, so like, yes, I'm bisexual, but let me not really play up my love for men. Let me just focus on my love for women. And then the, the, the feeling like you don't fit in because the stereotypes of these communities are so ingrained that if you don't fit it perfectly, then you might not have a space and it takes a really long time, still a work in progress to find what, who you are. And then that'll probably change in three years. It's great. Yeah. Or even accepting that you are not totally anything. It's, it's the combo of all of these things that make you special and they're going to sometimes keep you out of these other places or make you feel like you don't totally belong, but they're both important and have value. Mm-hmm. I did think it was super cute. Oh, episode six is also where we're introduced to Esther or what, who we yes. know as S. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought it was just like so adorable that like she's hung over and then Bert and Georgia are talking to her and then it pans out to all the fucking drunk queers just passed out on pizza boxes and on the ground being like, okay, everybody get up. And I was like, ah, flashbacks to my high school. I was going to say relatable <laughs> sleep where you fall. Basically. <laughs> yep. Use that pizza box as a pillow and a scarf as a blanket. <laughs> yep. Call it good. And then we find out is it episode the beginning of episode seven that we find out what's happened to Joe or is it the end of episode six? It's the beginning of episode seven. So they kind of leave okay. a bit of a cliffhanger as uh, so the raid kind of happens. Rosie holds the door for a minute. Uh, Greta and Carson escape. Uh, Lupe and Jess are fine because it turns out they never actually joined them there. Um, but Joe, unfortunately, does get it's stuck in the bar, it turns out. But um, Carson and Greta kind of sneak into the theater next door. So, uh, yeah, episode seven opens with them kind of waiting to see what happened to Joe. Before we moved to episode seven, there was mm-hmm. uh, one thing from episode six I wanted to shout out besides all, all the history of it all. And it was Clance's interpretation of The Wizard of Oz. 
I am a big Wizard of Oz fan, so this is not my interpretation, but it made me laugh so hard. When she was, like, screaming in the theater, Dorothy is evil, she just comes in here and invades another universe, drops a house on the locals, manipulates poor bastards into following her on some fool's errand for zero pay, I was elated. She is not wrong. She is not wrong with this interpretation. She's not. At all. And goes on when they get home to be like black people are the witches <laughs> this is a witch hunt all they wanted to do is get justice for her sister and all of these colonizing invaders come and ruin the world and it was just uh love this read great. of wizard of oz yes i loved it because yeah if you don't get swept up in the magic of it all and the saturation colors then yeah i could see this read <laughs> yes that that yeah i 100 percent. i was like never thought of it that way but that is accurate yeah <laughs> especially when you have then the context of wicked and just how wrongfully persecuted alphaba was i'm like corruption now i just want to sing the wicked soundtrack to you but i'll leave that for off pod so episode oh, okay seven. i lied i lied oh, there's oh, one more moment bad. i have to there's one okay. more moment i have to shout out, shout it, out. It, it reminded me of you again a maybell line of so course. carson's trying this thing where they're rotating the team speech, right? Everyone's going to give their inspiration thing because we're a mm-hmm. team and everyone's going to bring something to the table. Mabel does like the second one and she goes, oh, me? Oh, okay. Let me think. And literally the next line out of her mouth is, well, I don't mean to brag, but <laughs> Brianna, it's you, Brianna. It's you, it's you, it's you. And then she goes on to talk about she won a trophy or something. The and- corn chowder competition. <laughs> yes, the corn chowder competition. Yes. I was just laughing hysterically during that because I was like, breeds you. <laughs> there you are. It's totally me. Yeah, it 100% is. Especially at the end when like Shirley's freaking out that she's queer and Mabel's like, hey, Shirley, calm down and who cares? I was like, thank you! I've been saying this the whole, yes. like, the whole time. Yes. I And I feel like within that speech uh, she also says, it like talks about how different of a world it is back then where she says like I would never have a kid by myself um because it's not possible but now thinking about it like women do it all the time I don't remember the context of that but I'm pretty sure Mabel said that and I was like wow that's different yep there was also one speech where someone started it I think it was Greta with all right fruits and I was like oh this is just a nice little gay joke at the other gays on the team so I loved that one too Okay, episode seven? Cool. So episode seven is called Full Count. Clearly a baseball reference. Max gets another Uh shot. (laughs) You got that one, right, Mm Brie? Three balls, two strikes. Speaking of baseball, how are... Fuck off. Fuck off. (laughs) Fuck off. We're not talking about it. It's fine. (laughs) I got to see them win. That's all that matters. Okay, cool. So, sounds like your Yankees aren't in it anymore. <laughs> Just thought I'd touch on that real quick. Ooh. So, I'll do a synopsis super quick. Max gets another shot in a way she never expected. A shift in the lineup threatens everything the Peaches have worked for. Carson struggles to keep the team together, and Lupe and Esty finally find common ground. So my first note for episode seven is, but seriously, where is Esty? Because she's been missing since like the night before. And there's been all this drama at the queer bar. So it's not really a focal point of the episode, but like 
I was kind of panicking. <laughs> I was like, no, she can't leave. She's how are we gonna how are we gonna steal bases? And also we haven't given much uh spotlight to Esty, but talk about a fucking difficult experience. Oh yeah. Doesn't speak the language. The one person that does treats you like you're a disease and a burden. No one really has up to this point that we've learned has attempted to learn the language you speak. You're constantly left out. You're the youngest player. Like that just sounds awful. It does. I felt so bad for her. And she's so cute. Like when she stands up after that takes us back to episode six, when she fucking stands up at the table and she says, I want to go to the movie. And she's just like crying because nobody thought to bring her and Lupe was just being a little dick. Yep. We find out why in a little bit, but was just being a little dick and was like, no, I'm not going to tell you. And she just was left alone at the house. Yeah. When they find the scrap, like, like drafts of notes that she writes her family where she lies about how, like what a good time she's having. That was heartbreaking. Because she, she's so lonely because she can't talk to anyone. But then, of course, we find out in this episode that Jess has been trying. And, of course, it yep. was like, of course, my Jess would try. <laughs> and just speaking a little Spanish to her. And I was like, ah, these are the characters I want to see more development of. Which oh, yeah. we did in this episode a bit. Yeah, so we find out a little bit later. Again, we're skipping all around. But... Jess does a fantastic move. I think this was this was cute, where <laughs> there Jess is kind of teaching Essie to drive, and uh, she's doing her best, but could be better, and ends up getting a flat when she crashes a little bit into a curb. And Jess opens the trunk and goes, "Ah, oh, I can fix it, but I need some stuff." And closes it and like goes to get stuff. Right, essentially forcing Lupe and Essie to hang out together. And uh, so Jess is gone for a while. And they do talk it out. We learn that part of the reason that Lupe has such a hard time with Esty is because that Lupe had a daughter previously that she couldn't really raise or didn't really raise. Her parents took it because of how young she was and she left and never really looked back. And Esty reminds her of her daughter. So it's it's pretty triggering to spend time with her. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, rough go, but projection much? Like, yeah. again... You can go through really difficult experiences, but it is also your responsibility to not be a dick to other people. Um, but it did break my heart. I was like, okay, I understand a lot more. Did not see that coming because there was nothing that had indicated like anything other than just annoyance about the fact that she had to be the only one that could translate for her. Yeah. Uh, and so... I got it, but I wasn't like, oh, this absolves you. I was still like, mm. Yeah, I thought Esty was particularly forgiving. Yes. Yeah, she's like immediately like, oh my gosh, that's so sad. Big hug. We're best friends. I understand you now. Everything's fine. And then yeah. Jess kind of comes back with nothing but bottles of Coca-Cola. And Lupe's like, the fuck, man? Jess is like, oh, yeah, I mean, there's a spare. But yeah. I figured we could all work it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was great. I thought that was cute. And get context. Yeah. But I want to know more. Agreed. Boy, so much happens in episode seven. It so, does. I know. So we meet Charlie for the first time. Charlie is back. 
he just kind of surprises Carson. Yes. So that's rough because a whole bunch of stuff's just gone down. And now she also has to deal with Charlie being there. This was another, another curveball, if you will. Mm -hmm. You're Uh, so funny. Um, I would just like to shout out that Charlie is from Suits and from Take Me Out, which is a another gay baseball. Uh, It's a play. You get to see a lot of penises. It was great. I saw it. So yeah, he's there. Wow, good. <laughs> that was your entire point of saying that, huh? I saw some penis. All right, so much penis just cool. out there. Thank you, Brianna, for your contribution. Yes. So the chemistry between Carson and Charlie, they read as best friends to me. I think they have like you know when they're reminiscent about their teachers and stuff. No sexual tension. Zero. No. No. Absolutely. But I, but I think like. During that time, like if you were best friends with someone and you were boys and girls, then like the expectation was that you would get married. And I feel like that had been their problem. Like there'd always been something missing. And it was the fact that like Carson, forgot the name again, was never sexually attracted to him. But, and we find out that he had efforts syndrome, which is essentially, I hyperlinked it, uh, Kind of like PTSD, but not. Presents with shortness of breath, palpitations, fatigue, and dizziness. Um, So it sounds kind of like an anxiety attack. Yeah, I was going to say, it kind of sounded like panic attacks, which probably are related to PTSD, but impossible to say, I suppose. Yes. Uh, So that's why he was at the hospital. And he did read the letter. Yep. Yep. We find out that he was lying about not getting the letter. So you think they they would be better off as friends? Because I wrote down, what do you think of Carson and Charlie's relationship? Yeah, I think they're pals. And it's cool to be pals. But in a lot of ways, it doesn't feel fair to them to keep pretending it's a marriage, I guess. I also wrote down, when you love someone, but you know they are unhappy, you do everything you can to make them happy. Because I truly did think that Charlie loves Carson. And like that's got to suck for him to love someone. And know that like they don't love you in the way that 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 you do. Like that's just shitty. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this is jumping all the way ahead, but the very last scene of the entire show is him discovering that she's had a thing with Greta, and I think that answers a lot of a lot of the questions that he may not have known to ask, but. Probably makes a lot of sense. Some of the like stuff she says in her letter, like I'm not normal or I can't remember the exact wording, but like there's something different about me kind of thing. Mm -hmm. This to me is what she was talking about, but it's not necessarily what he read into it. Yeah. I think episode seven was my favorite because there was just so much that happened and that kind of set us up for a second season. There's a lot of good stuff in episode seven. Like I have multiple things I still want to touch on. Oh, a hundred percent. Like, and I feel like this kind of relates to what we're talking about. So when Charlie shows up, Greta, of course, surprise, surprise. Greta's not my favorite character. Um, Like I get why she's the way that she is, but like, okay, I'm just gonna say it. So Charlie returns, Greta pulls away and blames Carson. And it's like, it was always a fling. 
blah, blah, blah. So then the question that kind of came up for me, I don't really remember the context of this, but this is what it was. At what point does the risk become worth it? I feel like it's definitely up to each person, but I wonder for you, what would play a role? If I fell in love, then it'd be worth it. Like it doesn't, I don't know how to extrapolate on that more. But do you think then that that means that they weren't in love or do you think their safety was still overriding their, their love? I think they were a hundred percent in love and that Greta's entire, honestly, most of what Greta says in response to this is not true, right? She's just very emotional for a bunch of different reasons. I think it's, she's just, again, reacting out of fear. She's scared for herself. She's scared for Joe. She's scared for all kinds of stuff. So I would even say that she goes back on this. Mm-hmm. So this is just, it's almost like a, I don't, it's not a tantrum. It's not a tantrum, but wow, it's, I'm tr- like, it's just a, it's just a reaction. It's just a reaction. It's an overcorrection. It yeah, is. That's, that's the word. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's coming from a place of survival. The fight, flight, freeze, flee. And, and maybe some jealousy that Charlie is there as well. But even before Charlie shows up, like when he shows up, it's Carson and Greta in the bedroom, honestly screaming about their relationship in a way where I was like, y'all need to keep it down. Like this just happened. We're talking about how it's not safe and how we don't want to do this more, but you're screaming about it. So I, I don't know, not very careful there. Mm-hmm. But I think the Charlie of it all really adds added to Greta's reaction, which I understand. I also think, though, the conversation that Joe and Greta have, because going back to what happened to Joe, Joe gets transferred to another team, uh, is not thrown in jail, is not does not have her name put in the paper because the chaperone, Beverly, Beverly. pays her her money. And or pays the cops her own money to ensure that that does not happen and goes forward with transferring Joe to another team. Everyone is devastated, but it is actually an act of kindness and love from Beverly to even do that because she did not have to. And then Joe has to like go and pack and go leave to the blue stockings. Uh, And I forget exactly what it said, but essentially like Greta is ready to pack up and leave and like run. And Joe is like, no, like I am choosing my life. I'm choosing playing baseball over you. I'm choosing to no longer stay in this not super great relationship. That's the friendship because I'm constantly following you around. I'm constantly like cleaning up after your messes and I'm doing what I want to do. And I feel like in that situation, that is Joe taking a risk on leaving this friendship for herself because Greta is just so paralyzed by the fear and what's happened in the past with her other partner that like it is constantly preventing her and Joe and a little bit Carson from being able to like put down roots or really develop anything that's stable. Yeah. I think Joe kind of touches on like baseball, something she's passionate about and gives her autonomy and she's, she wants that. So yeah, 
I agree. I thought this was a very, very great conversation. She, mm -hmm. it's very mature, right? Yeah, she just had the snot beat out of her, and that's that's truly, truly awful. But she's got a pretty level head on her shoulders when she tells Greta, like, "Hey, I'm yeah. we're we're doing this. I'm doing this, and you're doing that. So, good luck to you." Yeah, uh, that though, like what you just said about the essentially adult conversations, reminded me of another adult conversation between Esther and Max, but I'm going to super jump ahead. So do you have anything that you wanted to say about Joe and that? Get to jumping. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't going to quantum leap. And then I don't know what that's from, but I'm sure it's from something, you know, probably Star Trek, maybe Star Wars. Stop. You're hurting yourself. Please continue. Okay. <laughs> so we meet Esther, who is the love interest of Max in episode six. And it turns out that Esther plays for the Screws. No, plays for another team. Correct. Not the Screws. Know. Not the Screws. Plays for a team that's visiting that to a certain extent kind of reminded me of the Harlem Globetrotters where they had to make it like comedic in the beginning. Um, and then they had to, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. She meets Esther and finds out she's a baseball player. And Esther is a hoe. I wrote, boo you hoe. Because <laughs> Esther is really rude to Max and is like, you just can't hack it. You're just not good enough. And it immediately brought up the idea for me of like the idea that there's only room for one person that like I had to claw my way here. And so you can't take away this space. This space is pie and this is my pie. And that is a very common way of thinking when you are from a marginalized community and you want, you finally get to like where you've wanted to go. You don't want to do anything to risk it, especially letting other people in to take space away from you is how it feels. And I, I didn't read this the same way. Okay. I read it kind of as them sizing each other up mm. and not quite so much stay out stay away from what i have and maybe it's the actions that come later that that kind of that tone that down and see but the reason continue. the reason why i felt like this like is what was happening was because later max comes up and communicates to her and is like hey here's how i played a role in this here's me taking my responsibility for this miscommunication and for this like puffing up and I'm sorry. I'm proud of you and like, good luck. And I think that being able to do that then allowed Esther to be like, ah, my space like is not threatened by her presence. It's okay for more than one of us to exist in this space. And so I can let her try. I can let her have this opportunity because my ego isn't wounded. And I thought that like, in so many shows and movies that we see, we don't get that type of adult conversation where we take responsibility for the roles we've played in something falling apart. And I was like, yes, grown up conversation. I love it. Yeah, I think the apology kind of takes all of the like momentum out of the competitiveness the two of them inherently have from their personalities and from how difficult it is to get what they want and all of those different things. In relation to this, I also really loved 
right before this happens where Clance asks Max, does it hurt seeing her play? Because I feel like it's only because they're best friends that she can even ask this question. And it just shows that she's thinking about how hard it is for Max. And Max pretty much says, like, yeah, it kills me. Like, mm -hmm. absolutely kills me. And that's exactly how I would feel as well. So, yeah, yeah this whole this whole baseball scene with Esther and Max was was fantastic right because then eventually she fakes a, sh a shoulder injury so Max can finish the game because they have no other pitchers and Max gets her shot she finally gets on a baseball team and guy backs her up like I I thought that was great I thought her having support from multiple people was great you are not convinced Wait, are you talking about Gary on the other team that is who I mean when I say guy. Okay. Because guy is Clance's husband. Is that's Clance's off at war. husband. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Mighty. Love you, guy. Hope you're okay. But also, okay. I've been talking about Gary. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he's whatever. He's supportive enough. I don't know. To me, he's like the kind bystander, but he didn't do a ton. But he had a penis, so his word went far. Sure. At one point, I have in my notes that Clance called Esther a bitch when was being like a hype yes, girl. Right. And so right after, yeah, they have their Max and Esther have their very first fight, right? And they part ways. Clance just like, well, she's a bitch. Yes. And I was like, yes, being a hype girl. She's a no. ride or die. And I love I know. It. I know. I love it. Ugh, me too. At the very end when Max is getting on the train because she's gonna go play ball and Clance is giving her the letters that have her address on them already so she can send them back and she's crying and she's gonna miss her and oh heartbreaking stuff i love their friendship so much and i also same 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 mostly because it reminds me a lot of our friendship um and so it's fine our friendship is great okay <laughs> i also have letting go of your dreams for your best friend to be happy and i feel like that's in regard to because I also have it written down of like oh my god are you dying way to use the correct pronouns and standing up for your family uh and so I'm always going to worry about you because you're mine sob and so I feel like these notes come from a conversation that Clance and Max had and I'm pretty sure it's when Max told Clance essentially that she's queer and that she's going to be around Uncle Birdie more often and yeah I just thought it was really, really sweet. Yeah, that because your mind scene was was really, really it was really cute. Yeah. Their friendship is ugh, it's so cute. They're it's just so, so yeah, it's and so they're just cute. so like honest about how much they mean to each other. Yeah. I think that's why it's so easy to just like get emotional about it, right? Because they're like, mm -hmm. oh, you're the most most important person to me. They say it, they show it. At one point, Max makes a joke like, oh, I was out with my other friends. And Clance just laughs and goes, no, really? What were you doing? <laughs> like, it's just me. <laughs> it's just me and you. <laughs> yes. Um, so something I noticed a lot in this show and this, I'm going to try not to turn this into a rant. Go but for it. it is unacceptable to me to come to other people's place of work 
to have a conversation with them. Absolutely never do that to me. I love you so much. You don't just get to waltz into someone's place of work to be like, hey, can we talk really quick? The answer is no, because I'm working. I don't really care what your job is, to be super honest. It happens repeatedly. Even Max going to Esther to be like, hey, let me apologize. Going to her place of work, interrupting her at work. I, I, I can't not see it. And it happens over and over and over again. I understand there are not a lot of telephones. I understand. I understand it's different technology, but I have in almost every episode in all caps, do not come to my place of work and bother me. Go ahead and respond, Brianna. Because <laughs> I'm over here being like, cool, 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 cool. So I'm definitely going to show up at your office one day. Um, my question for you is, how do you feel about that if you work with this person? Like if I worked with you in your office and I just wanted to scoop my little boot on over to say hi to you. If you also work there, so you're just at your place of work, perhaps on your off hours or not working, I could get behind it more. I still think you need a reason to go, not you're to bother reason. people. You are my while, reason. Okay, but if I'm working, I love you. I love everyone, but I'm not really to be bothered unless it's an emergency. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you know who also feels this way? Probably Aquila. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. I honestly almost 100%. texted her about it. <laughs> Did she watch this and with you? Uh, she watched it before me. Okay. okay. And then watched these last episodes with me. Okay. But yes, every time because we both work from home, I just like slide into her office. I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, working. I don't. I, I think you're wrong. I think you'd love my presence if I just like randomly showed up at your job every once in a while, especially if we couldn't talk regularly. Come on, Jess. You can be wrong on this one. Just take the L. Um, nope. I stand yep. firm. I stand firm. I don't don't come to my place of work. Shoot me a text. If I get a break, I'll respond. But you don't get to show up. Maybe, maybe when I was 16 and I worked at Little Caesars. Sure. Whatever. I did that all the time. I know, but not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. It's Security honestly, would also never let you in the building. Honestly, only because we live 3,000 miles away. Um, there is another scene that I kind of want to touch on. Go for. Um, between uh, it's after the game. Max is a hero. Um, it's between Max and Esther, and they say something to the effect of they're never going to let a person of color cross that line, right? And, and play professional baseball. And what they don't know is they're actually not that far away. So this is 1943, but Jackie Robinson comes four years later. So that scene, kind of just knowing the history a little bit, was kind of cool because they're not that far. And, and they do go on to say, like, wouldn't it be cool if it was us? And, like, that obviously still has never happened. There are no women in Major League Baseball. So ways to go. But um, I don't know. History-wise, that was kind of cool. Yeah, I agree. Also, history-wise, I feel like we should shout out that technically Jackie Robinson is not the first black baseball player in the Major League Baseball. In the 1880s, there's actually a player in Canada for the Blue Jays um, who was on their team as a catcher. And this was before gear was even invented. Jesus. So he, Yeah, so he took a beating behind the plate, multiple broken ribs. Um, and that was just kind of what you did as a catcher. So his name was Moses Fleetwood Walker. So just thought I'd shout out that that baseball history. Hold on to that little nugget for when we do baseball trivia once in our life. And yeah, I did not know that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So Jackie Robinson is the first American, but technically did have one in Major League Baseball in Canada. 
Um, tail end of episode seven ends with cuts with Shirley saying, I know about you to Carson. And that's where we cut and start episode eight. I had not really planned on watching both episodes back to back necessarily. Like I was going to take a break in between. But then when this happened, I was like, oh, nope, I got to see what Shirley knows. Because Shirley's so weird. I wasn't sure if it was what we were going to think or not. So uh, so that takes us into episode eight, which is called Perfect Game. And the Peaches season comes to an emotional conclusion while Carson and Greta struggle with what's next. Max reckons with an old chapter before opening a new one. Wow, those are kind of vague, but. That's kind of the gist. <laughs> mm-hmm. This episode opens with Max and Clance doing uh, like uh, a happy strut into work. They've got their denim outfits on. Hair's all did. They got their sunglasses on. And it's like they are celebrities because now Max is on a baseball team and Clance is supporting her. So I loved that that opening. Starting off on a nice happy tone. Yeah. That was really, really, really cute. And then Clance's roommate interviews were just oh, hysterical throughout those this episode. Were so funny. Those and were so- she essentially ended up with a Patrice from How I Met Your Mother. And it really made my life very, very happy. <laughs> That's a great comparison. I thought so. <laughs> uh, I did notice, or not notice, but like Carson and Charlie were talking because she'd gotten like all of the money. And I think this is the episode where she asks him to leave because. She's like, no, I can't do this. And she says, I wasn't allowed to make a bank account because you weren't here. And I was like, God, this country sucks. Yep. Couldn't invest. Yeah. So you just get to hang on to a lot of money until your husband gets back or, you know, your brother or your dad can buy something for you. Those are your options. Nope. No, thank you. Yeah, I wrote the walk-in scene is gold. It's the type of hype that I want and need in my life. Like, I just need people in my life to be like, yes, 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 work it. I think one of the most, like, the scenes that stick out from this episode to me are one between Max and her mom about how her mom has always known that Max is queer. She always knew that she wasn't going to have a husband. Um, and that's why she wanted her to have the salon so badly because she knew she wasn't going to have that support. So this was one of the scenes that stuck out. I I feel like Max has had this tension of like, oh no, how do I tell them? And that's got to be some kind of relief that they already know. That entire scene with her, with her mom and her dad and Clance. Because also, let's just go back to Clint. She's the the brevity in this scene. Where she's like, "We need a code word. We, you can't just leave me alone." He's like, "Oh my god, I love her so much." <laughs> the funnier moment is when the dad makes the joke, "Oh, we should leave," and she just like starts getting ready, like she wants to leave, and he goes, "Oh, I'm joking." And she's like, "Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah." It's <laughs> like two one foot out the door, and he's like, "Ooh, I was kidding. I live here." Yep, I wrote Clint and Max's dad are the best. Uh, <laughs> But I think that, like, while this episode had a lot of great comedic moments, it also had a lot of, like, heavy moments. So, like, what you're talking about with the I've always known, the idea of, like, how do you support someone else's dreams without crushing it, but letting it happen without naivety? Like, that, I feel like, is one of the major responsibilities of being a parent, and also of being a friend, because like you really got to let your friends fall on their fucking faces and be there to get up or be there when they get up. And like, it's just when you love someone, 
you can't limit them, but you also, if you just tell them what they should be concerned about, oftentimes they'll only hear it with defensiveness. So like, you don't want them to get hurt. It's just, it's so hard. So hard. Yeah. Clance actually has a line that sums up what you're saying in in episode seven, actually, where she says, as your best friend, I, I couldn't watch you walk through all of life, not having followed your dreams or something like that, or letting your, your, not following your dreams, weighing you down. I, I didn't write down the exact quote, but essentially like, I can't let you let this go. Like you keep saying you will, because I know it will destroy you and I care about you too much. I think that's what I attempted to get at with the letting go of your dreams for your best friend to be happy line. Yeah. Because I remember that and I was like, oh my God. Yeah. It was very articulate when she said it. It felt very powerful and um, so glad we butchered it so terribly. Yeah, I know. I know. But we got the idea at least, right? <laughs> um, Max's dad also had a line that I thought summed up or a similar sentiment. And he says, I've always believed in you. It's just hard for us to believe in the world. I wrote that one down too. Yeah. And that's right. He's saying like, it's not that we don't think you can do it. It's all of these systems, sexism, racism, all of these different things that are against you that we have a hard time believing won't work against you. And rightfully so. Yep. Like you to a certain extent, shouldn't believe in the world. Yep. People have made these systems. You should not believe in people as a conglomerate, but you should believe in people as individuals and hope that the person you've raised or the person that you're in a relationship with will find other people that will make this world easier and make their dreams come true. Totally. I I want to talk about Shirley a little bit. The whirlwind that is Shirley. The whirlwind that is Shirley. Yeah. Uh, So (laughs) Shirley goes through, fortunately, and about time, some liberation here. She's eating out of cans. She's conquering botulism. She kisses Carson in an attempt to see, it looks like, if queerness is contagious. And then she backs up and Carson's like, ooh, I wish she hadn't. And she realizes it's not and just she's overcoming obstacles right and left so i absolutely loved this for shirley breaking off those again yeah (laughs) breaking off those those chains that are really just keeping her down for no reason because all they're doing is holding her back so my one teeny tiny critique is is not of shirley but of the whole show i think they've done a great job and I've loved watching seeing everybody kind of accept queerness, right? As we get to know more characters, they're either queer themselves or they accept it like Maybell, right? Who cares? I think, and it almost touches on being unrealistic at a certain Mm. point, because I do think there would be a character or two that would have more pushback. And I thought it was going to be Beverly until we get that moment. No, she gets fuck. Right, we get that moment with her and Jess at the end where she gives back all the money she find her for wearing pants and says, we gotta stick together. And like winks at her, right? Being like, oh, don't worry, me too. So like, it's most of the team. But I think I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't know if this is a disagreement, but I'm gonna disagree with yeah. you. In that, okay. I don't think it was necessary for any of the main, including all of the beeline characters, to be homophobic or transphobic because the world around them was already. So in the very beginning, we got the, the makeup woman shoving the, the sexism down 
their throats. We got the the racism being shoved in our faces from pretty much every possible angle. We got the sexism from Dove. We got like it so much, the homophobia and transphobia from the police. Like just so many external opportunities that we knew it was ever present. And I think it was really nice to not have it exist in the core because not everyone was like that. People like this did exist. And it's okay to highlight that and just have every awful thing stay at the periphery because it did come in. It just wasn't part of the main character. Yeah. Uh, that's that's super fair and a lot of the reasons that these characters i think can be so accepting or i don't care about it is because of kind of what mabel says about joe when someone says we need her back because of her bat and mabel says no we need her back because she's our friend it's much more about those personal relationships than it is about a lot of these other things right once you're on a team with someone day in day out you're competing you're working together you're getting to know them it's it's I would think tough to hate them for something that doesn't actually really affect you that much when you care about them as a person. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Maybell is great. She is. I actually kind of wish there was a little more Maybell, right? Like it takes like the last episode for her to be like, Oh yeah, I have kids. It's like, what? <laughs> Where was this before? Like maybe we should have given her a couple more lines. And, and maybe she will. I was very thankful that they did not bring the kid back from the fucking movie because he was so obnoxious yep oh my gosh i i would love to see a further development of like her like maybe in the second season like oh i can't come back this time because i uh, like can't get people to watch my kids or something like that and so they have to go bring her back i don't know something but yeah i'm interested to see what they do in season two but let's touch on the the climax of the show really quick where Joe has hit a home run and the Peaches, they're going to lose. It's a, it's a sad time. But as Joe is rounding first base, unfortunately, due to the beating she received at the gay bar the day before, she It was falls. not the day before. It, it not- could not have been the day before. No, because they played like seven games. It was the last game of the the series and, and her like wounds had healed, but it was a leftover injury. So it was at oh, least okay. a month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I thought the same thing too, but then, yeah, it, wow. yeah. I was not tracking that time jump here. Okay, some I think they just did like a newspaper montage to do that, so I mm-hmm. maybe missed the the huge time jump. Okay, yes. Well, then, due Sorry. to that beating previously, <laughs> no, that's okay. It's a good catch. Um, she falls and hurts her knee and cannot get up. And the rules state that she must cross home plate to get the point and for them to win, and she cannot be helped by her teammates. So, of course, we can see it coming a mile away, but it's still cute as shit. All the peaches rally and carry her around all of the bases across home plate just so they can lose, but lose fair and square. So that was some that was pretty touching. Love a good display of sportsmanship. That was that got me right in my competitive sports heart. Yeah. Do we know if that is an actual rule? Um, you definitely have to cross home plate. That is assuredly a rule. Okay. Well, the yes. part about it not being able to be your team, not sure on that in the 40s. Okay. 
today I feel like they'd let you put in a pinch runner because there's more of an emphasis on safety, right? We have things like helmets when you go to bat that they didn't at the time. So not sure on that one. Okay. I was going to try and do a quick Google, but of course it's not a simple answer. No, no, of course not. No, no, no. no. There's like 10 different responses, so it's fine. Um, But yeah, so my experience with this show was that I came in to my mom sitting on the couch watching this episode um, because remember, she's the one that told me about the show. Yep. And so I started with the last 15 minutes of this episode is the first thing and the only thing that I saw. So I knew how it ended from jump. And I was like, oh, that's really cute. So it was nice to kind of see what led up to it. Yeah, that would be a strange way to watch the show ending and then go back. (laughs) But, you know, you do you. Good thing I don't mind spoilers. I know. I do love that about you. So want to touch on a couple overall thoughts and then uh, we'll call it a TV show. Yes, I just want to say, Clance is pregnant! Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, yep. Very excited for that. Yeah, um, there's clearly a couple little pieces to set up season two here, um, which has already been renewed, so we will get that at some point. But, yes. yep, starting yep. starting some threads. Yep. But yeah, overall theme, uh, what do you feel? I know, like, I think the last time we did this, we said, like, perseverance and stuff like that. Is there another theme that came up for you? I think it's a lot of the same themes, just explored a little bit more. Um, I think as far as perseverance, it's nice to see Max actually get some real chances, right? We kind of established it's not till the end of episode seven that she gets on a team, but gosh darn it, by the end of this, she is at least on a baseball team and following her dreams and even go so far as to say, like, if even if this is all like not real, the happiness I'm feeling in these moments is, is enough, which I thought was very aware. And I also feel like that was stated in like the Rosie O'Donnell scene where she's like, of course, I'm going to keep living like this, like this, this is, this happiness is worth whatever risk. And I was like, yes, go after things, even if it's scary and you're risking everything. Yeah. Yeah, and that would be the other theme is like people are worth it, whether it's family members with Max and Bert or relationships for all the queer folks in here. So, yeah, I think the show mostly establishes like obviously try to be careful because this time period wasn't the friendliest, but most of the time it's worth it. That's kind of the vibe I got anyway. Yeah, yeah. Do you think this show will win any awards? And if so, what ones do you think it could be competitive for? Um, do I think the League of Their Own has Emmy potential? I actually, Emmy. I actually don't. Um, <gasps> and not not because of any. Uh, honestly, because it's an ensemble. There's too many characters. Who would you run in lead? I Abby. mean, supporting actress would definitely be Bemi Sola. Just give it fucking give it all to her. I'd watch a show just about her. I do not disagree with you. I would love this. But trying to be honest about what I think the Television Academy would do, I don't think I don't think this is it. So maybe a technical award somewhere, but even that I'm not sure. So I, what do you think? 
that's horse shit. Um, <laughs> well, I know nothing about really what goes into these award shows except for racism. Um, and so I don't You're not really, wrong. You're I, not don't, wrong. I don't really know what to say, but I feel like it came out at a weird time to be like, by the time the Emmys comes around, I feel like people have been like, oh yeah, that show came out. And so, yeah, we could consider it. Uh, but I do feel like it is, some of the acting was worthy of awards, specifically Bemi Solos. I think she did a phenomenal job um, portraying like so much breath of emotion. Yeah, I wouldn't be upset about it, but I do think that would be quite a surprise. Okay. Well, I guess we're going to have to watch the Emmys and find out. You say that like I don't watch the Emmys every know, single the, year. Now I'm going to watch it with you. Do you prefer the movie or the TV show? They're very different. I love both of them in very different ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 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 I don't think they made a mistake like continuing this property. So that's not something okay. I can say for a lot of continuations or redos remakes any of that i don't a lot of times they're not great but i really like this one it just it it takes all the things the film couldn't explore and gets it gives it some time and some room yeah i agree i think it was a great um exploration of narrators narratives that were left out i prefer the 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 tv show but that's just because I don't have the nostalgia associated with the movie, uh, which is weird because it's definitely a movie that was played in my house a lot. So I don't know what the fuck I was doing. I was probably actually playing the sport, so it's fine. For how much you were playing it, there's a lot of baseball references <gasps> you didn't get. <laughs> you know what? It's just like religion. It went in one ear and out the other. <laughs> um, I have one final thought, and it's I would love to see more Bert. So... Writers of season two, sure you're listening to this. More Bert is the feedback. Thank you for joining us today on Queer Watching. If you want to send us an email with recommendations, you can at queerwatching at gmail.com. Again, that is queerwatching at gmail.com. Have a good night.